Uh, hello everyone, and it's unfortunately one of those episodes that we kind of don't ever like to have to do, um, but we thought we would kind of get together and say a quick few words about Philip Seymour Hoffman, who has tragically died uh, yesterday, age 46, far too soon, and yeah, a very, very kind of sad loss. Uh, his obituaries are being kind of uh, bandied about uh, as we speak, and uh, the consensus is that he was a kind of, uh, by far the kind of biggest and best actor of his kind of particular generation, which is said an awful lot about many people, but uh, in this case it really does stick, doesn't it, Ed? Yeah, definitely, and I think also it's something that for a lot of people has only just kind of dawned on them. Mm. Not because his work, you know, like that people never paid attention to his work. Obviously, he got a lot of awards and acclaim, and you know, he won an Oscar, and he was in lots of films that people really liked and that were really successful. But I think uh, his talent was so kind of uh, so so great and so kind of consistent across the board he was someone who as soon as you saw that he was in a film you just think there's going to be at least 10 minutes of that film that are going to be really worthwhile because Philip Zima Hoffman's going to be on screen and uh, I think and that's the sort of thing that's really easy to take for granted like you know when James Gandolfini died last year you know like he, he was someone who also appeared in lots of films and kind of small supporting roles and uh, achieved a great deal of acclaim and success later in life and you just kind of assume that someone who kind of uh, hits such a, a great run of form is going to keep going mm. uh, and sort of suddenly realising that it's all just suddenly screeched to a halt is uh, is kind of startling. Yeah, and he was kind of um, coming to that point in his career that he, he was kind of expected to be nominated for an Oscar pretty much every time he he kind of turned up on screen, um, and it's it takes a lot for uh, what is really a kind of a character actor to cross over into that kind of uh, uh, pedigree, doesn't it? Yeah, because he was a he was a, re- a weird combination of both a character actor, you know, someone who could really disappear into a role, and a draw in a way, like not in the sense that you know he could open a film to a hundred million dollars, but in the sense that if you saw his name in the credits of a film instantly that film became like 25% more appealing to you even in a film that already like something like The Eyes of March which is a film that um, I quite like but don't think is great like if you just look at the the other people involved in that you know you've got Clooney you've got Gosling you've got Paul Giamatti you've got Marissa Tomei and all of those like really good and then suddenly you add Philip Seymour Hoffman to the mix and you think oh now I'm definitely going to have to try and check this out mm. yeah and I mean and he seemed even kind of as his uh, popularity increased and his uh, options increased that he could pretty much take on and do any role he wanted to, he was still happy to take uh, the small interest in roles in like something like Moneyball, uh, which is ostensibly just a supporting role. Uh, but he kind of does it and, and elevates it to, you know, Philip Steenmore Hoffman standards. Yeah, and I think... One of the signs, I think, of his general integrity, which I think is something that people really liked about him as an actor, is that he didn't do what a lot of people do, which is, you know, they struggle as a supporting role and suddenly they get an Oscar for lead actor and they're cast in uh, something big budget like, you know, Mission Impossible 3, which he was really great in and obviously was the sort of role that could have allowed him to spend the rest of his days just playing sort of renter villains in big budget films. He didn't then just 
follow that route, he pretty much just turned inwards again and just went back to doing the same sort of roles that he'd always done throughout his career, even though, like you say, at that point, I'm pretty sure his options must have increased dramatically. Mm. Um, When he was kind of beginning to get a foothold in in the kind of business, as it were, he was always kind of willing to take on very difficult roles. Um, For instance, doing something like Happiness, um, which was a kind of a big risk for someone at that point, considering he'd kind of kind of broken through um, with with things like Boogie Nights and Big Lebowski, and to do something like the Todd Salons films where he plays uh, a, a kind of a deeply disturbing character um, shows that he just really wasn't he really didn't give a shit about what he did as long as the work was good. Yeah, and he he committed to absolutely everything he did. I mean, I, I last night. Uh, discovered that his first role was in an, an episode of Law and Order when he was 23, so I decided to watch that just to get a sense of it, and uh, I thought it was apt that the first thing he does is he screams really intensely at someone, mm. um, which is kind of a mode he would return to a lot throughout his career. But like even there, you know, he's a young guy and he's on a he's got a very sort of minor part, but you know he's really committing to it and he's really trying to get into the mind of someone who would be accused of rape but you know is trying to put up on a front that he didn't do it and uh, I think you can see that in you know everything he did he always committed to it fully like he's as committed to doing you know Lancaster Dodd in The Master as he is to playing the character of Gust in Charlie Wilson's War which is you know ostensibly a sort of a volatile uh, comedic role that could be played very broadly but he makes it very grounded and very real mm. And, you know, his star-making turn, I guess, would be uh, Capote, um, which uh, we've discussed uh, biopics in in the past and said how kind of uh, hard we find them sometimes and and how um, often an actor will just impersonate the person they're playing rather than kind of get under the skin. But he really does an amazing job in Capote because he's uh, pretty kind of fearless of how he approaches someone who is, you know, a hugely well-known personality. Uh, yeah, so he really turned Capote into a character. It wasn't just kind of going through the motions and doing the mannerisms. He felt like a real fit, a real human being, and, you know, he really inhabited that role and made him into someone who was, you know, fascinating to spend a feature-length film with, which uh, he, you know, I, I think Capote as a film isn't amazing. I think it's it's a little slow paced and it has sort of lulls but everything he's doing you know really raises that film up you can imagine that with a a different actor it would just be interminable and he really is responsible for making that such a an interesting and fascinating film um i suppose it's difficult not to mention um philip seymour hoffman uh without talking about the work he was doing with paul thomas anderson um, I think he is in pretty much all of his films except There Will Be Blood, is that correct? Uh, yes, that's right, yeah, he's in five out of the six feature films that he made. Yeah, and I mean, I I think obviously he kind of, um, you'd be forgiven for missing him in something like Hard Eight where his kind of parts are relatively small, um, but Boogie Nights was really uh, my first exposure to Philip Seymour Hoffman and as a kind of someone who can paint that character is a relatively small part of Scotty with such kind of tragicomic grace uh, in the way that he does uh, really did kind of it was like a big smack in the face and I think that uh, he kind of ushered in a kind of a new era of 
uh, of kind of character actors of uh, you know which you'd probably include John C. Riley in there as well. Um, but yeah, his Scotty kind of just leapt off the screen, and uh, after that, I was kind of uh, fully aware of who he was and what he could do. Yeah, I think it's interesting that that is, as you say, it's a fairly small part of this guy who kind of has this slightly creepy stalkerish and very sad uh, crush on Dirk Diggler who uh, doesn't obviously doesn't have any attraction to him because he's not gay but even if he was gay probably wouldn't be attracted to him because Philip Stuart Hoffman's kind of a like in the best possible way quite a, a dumpy kind of guy in that film you know he's not someone that you would kind of see as a heartthrob and he never really was throughout his career but Whenever I think of Boogie Nights, I think he's probably like the second or third character I think of, mm. just because he makes such a strong impression with you know what could be such a small nothing part, and I think that kind of runs throughout his whole career. I think what's interesting about the work he did with Paul Thomas Anderson is not just that you know their careers kind of went in tandem from there, you know their their work with each other was uh, something that really helped kind of. Uh, advanced them both as artists you know they both kind of came up together essentially because before they started working together you know uh, Philip Stuart Hoffman had supporting roles in stuff like Twister and The Getaway and Nobody's Fool and Scent of a Woman and stuff stuff that you know he was always really good in but you know not really great films and but after then you know because they were they they created such interesting characters together um I th- they they kind of their collaboration is something that I always think of, and when I think of one, I always think of the other. And if you look at their collaborations over those five films, you you kind of get really the comp- complete uh, breadth of his ability because you know it's it's kind of amazing to think that the kind of brash young guy in Hard Eight is the same as the kind of really kind of lovelorn guy that he plays in Boogie Nights or the either those guys are the same as, you know, uh, the nurse character he plays in Magnolia, where he's so kind of earnestly trying to do good, uh, or that that guy's the same guy as, he, as the mattress man in Punch Drunk Love, who's kind of a force of evil in the world. Mm. And then, you know, Lancaster Dodge, who I think is, is probably one of their kind of crowning achievements in terms of creating just a fully realised, complex and beguiling character. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think you, you you kind of spot on there that it's it does demonstrate that whole kind of breadth that he had, um, and it's kind of unusual to see um, a director going back with an actor all the time when they're not in the lead role. But I think Paul Thomas Anderson would always know that what Paul Tom, uh, what um, Philip Seymour Hoffman would bring, which is just class. Yes, it's class, and it's also I think just this kind of real humanity to all of his roles and sort of uh, even when he's playing sort of figures who are are brash or you know men of violence you know I think there's always a, a, a frailty to them and sort of a real kind of humanity to them and I think the, the the film I think of in terms of demonstrating how compelling he was as a as a as an actor is one of his few lead roles which was in uh, Charlie Kaufman's uh, Synecdoche New York where he has to ground a film that's based on kind of an insane premise, you know, really insane premise of a, a playwright being given enough money to reconstruct an entire city in a warehouse and then, as it goes along, creating cities inside that city and, you know, and, and having to explore uh, the psyche of someone. 
so fully, and uh, he's completely believable in it, even though the stuff around him is completely crazy. Mm. Uh, he was a pretty gifted kind of comic actor as well. Uh, I feel like um, his turn in, again, a very, very small role, but kind of really kind of hits it out of the park in The Big Lebowski, um, is uh, immaculately played comic uh, performances. Brandt, the Big Lebowski's uh, kind of sycophantic lackey, um, but his his kind of reactions to the dude in that film are just kind of just so, so brilliant and so spot on. Uh, there's a bit where uh, Bunny Lebowski offers to suck uh, Jeffrey Lebowski's cock for a thousand dollars, and Brandt's reaction to that is just uh, it's just you know it's just remarkable. Yeah, he's just kind of he plays that kind of obsequious toady mm. really really well, and every line he says is just really kind of deadpan and funny and like like you say it's it, it's almost like you can't believe that it's him in that role when you consider all of his other roles you know he, he his performances if you look at his IMDb list and you look at all of the performances I think a lot of the time you go oh I'd forgotten he's in that and it's not because his performances in them are unmemorable it's that he so disappeared into everything he did that yeah. you kind of you're surprised to think, oh, it's the same guy. Mm. Like that role in Moneyball. I'd forgotten he was that he has that small role in Moneyball. Uh, but he's really good in it, and it's a really, really good performance. But, you know, again, it's so unshowy, and he's so committed to it that you just kind of forget you're watching an actor, and you think you're watching a person. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, what was what was he working on at the moment? I think he was he had almost finished the third Hunger Games film, but I think the studio have already come out and said they're not going to recast his role. He was almost uh, finished uh, in that part. Um, he had a TV show uh, that he'd kind of shot a pilot for. What was that? It was a show called Happy-ish. The pilot had been shot by uh, John Cameron Mitchell of uh, Hedwig of the, and the Angry Itch and recently of... Uh, recurring role on girls fame um and uh, that was about a guy who was uh, kind of a sad, sad sack guy who sort of worked in uh, sort of i believe social media marketing kind of area and was sort of railing against youth orientated uh, uh culture and uh i uh, there's very little else known about it um obviously they'd only shot the pilot so the series now they're left with the question of whether or not to abandon the whole thing or recast, so that's up in the air. But I would, I would hope that they would find some way of releasing the pilot at least, because I think that would probably be one of the very last things he had worked on. Mm. It's it's kind of so heartbreaking, really, to look through his his CV and as kind of uh, amazing it, as it is, uh, there was just so much more to come. Yeah, I think uh, Matt Singer of the Dissolve wrote uh, the the obit for them yesterday, and he had a wonderful phrase which he said, "Looking through uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's filmography is like looking at a list of the best American films of the last twenty years," and uh, I think that kind of bears out just what a mark of quality he was for pretty much everything. But even in like the small things, like something like The Savages, which is a really, really funny and uh, affecting comedy drama, you know he. Would just he was so good at just fully embodying whatever character he was playing, and just he just elevated everything he was in, really. Yeah, and that's the that's the mark of the guy that uh, he can uh, be in something and elevate it. Um, even Patch Adams, <laughs> um, <laughs> which you know takes some doing. Um, 
got a favourite performance of his? Um, I, I think probably his performance in Synecdoche, New York, just because it's so... Uh, that That's a film that's kind of grown with me on me every time I've watched it, and I think a large part of that is he is so kind of central to it and so so grounds something that's so kind of... Uh, ambitious and bold and insane in some ways mm. um, I think that's a real mark of what he did well mm. I think maybe it's just because I'm really bummed out about the whole affair I'm <laughs> I'm thinking about Mary and Max uh, the uh, oh, the yeah. animated film he voices a character and I think maybe that just reflects you know how rubbish the news is and uh, uh, yeah kind of how I'm thinking about the moment but I think Boogie Nights is the one I'd pick um, and he, even Almost Famous which is a film I really don't like he is brilliant as Lester Bangs and uh, even for people who don't know who Lester Bangs is you get it you get it straight away yeah I think it's uh, as with James Gandolfini I think it's it's not just the you know obviously it's sad because he was a he was a father and a husband and you know he he had a life and everything and he was someone who was clearly struggling with addiction uh, you know I, I, I heard last year that he had checked himself into rehab and they you know there was that and that was the thing that made it really sad uh as well just knowing that you know he was clearly trying to save himself and he couldn't quite manage it but knowing that you know we've got this uh sort of 23 years of really great performances and not knowing that we're and knowing we're not going to get like 30 years more mm. which i think is what you know he would have he would have given he seemed like someone who would never kind of take it easy, never take the easy paycheck and just kind of phone it in. Like, even if he was in something that was like blockbuster fare, he was always, he was always on. Mm. I think he would have been great as sort of an elder statesman. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, that's us on Philip Seymour Hoffman, who has uh, passed away age 46. Uh, we loved his work and, yeah, we hope everyone enjoys his uh, legacy. I'd love to get you on a slow boat to China all to myself alone get you and keep you in my arms Myself 